you can try and convince anybody of certain numbers of how great a certain public health intervention is. But if you haven't seen the disease, or even that you avoid the disease, then you don't really have a full sense of what it could have been. You're listening to Good Is In The Details. I'm Gwendolyn Dolsky. And I'm Rudy Sallow. And this is the podcast where we learn what we didn't know we didn't know in the spirit of Socrates. In this episode, we've got a lot of good and we've got a lot of details. Do. There's a lot of a lot of memorable things about this episode. One, the one major thing that stuck with me, and I actually spoke with our other former guest, Mark Farley, is how offended the, our guest was that I failed to mention that he was a part of one of the high school bands I was in in the conniption. And I didn't know that that hurt him. And uh, <laughs> and so, yes, there's there a lot Take of high wounded. school reminiscent episode. But that's it. For, for listeners that don't know us or don't know our high school episode, this is a great one if you're really interested in medical ethics, if you're really interested in what is a good doctor, what does that mean? What is a bad doctor? I mean, there's, a, there's a lot to this episode if you've ever really wanted to talk about medical ethics and like listen to a really caring, phenomenal doctor. Dr. Anthony McCanta. Yeah, I was like, we should mention his name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, his, his his real name. Yeah, we should stop calling. We should call him by his doctor name. As I was going over this, honestly, I'm just so grateful for it because it's part just hearing the joyful conversation of three old friends and also learning a lot about medical ethics, about what he does. He's extraordinary. And then his take on the importance of the way in which we view data, that there is this humanity element to medicine. It's not just science and not just black and white, but that's important in terms of care with patients. Yeah, I absolutely loved it. He's super insightful. Thank you, Tony, for coming on the show. You drove all the way up from South Orange County to come do it in studio. And thank you for being friends with a person like me for as long as you, you have been. It, uh, it, it's, it, it means a lot to me. And uh, so thank you. <laughs> Tony's awesome. Okay. Let's talk medical ethics. Yeah. So Tony has an incredible CV, but I feel like yeah. we should start with maybe one of the most important things. What's that? Um, he was my junior prom date. That's yes. That okay. That's... So this is this is this is this is what we should start with. So the, the the reason why this is an important episode is Gwen's junior prom date. We're gonna get into your CV, Tony, but we're gonna talk about medical ethics, informed consent. But there is something I want to start out with that I think is interesting. So just knowing that your background is in theology and anthropology, what does that do for you? If someone were to say, well, what are you going to do with that? Does it inform your practice or your decision in medicine now? Yes, I think actually anthropology really is maybe more important in my day-to-day life, but anybody can learn science or anybody can learn how to do medical stuff. But really what I like about being a doctor in general is the face-to-face interaction with people that you get to sit with people in their worst moments and families. And, uh, you know, part of my actual science of what I do is sudden death. What probably one of Rudy's least favorite things to think about, but I, I come to the bedside of people whose, (laughs) whose kids, have died suddenly, um, who we've resuscitated, or even scenarios where people have died suddenly and they haven't resuscitated them. I meet with the families and try and figure out a genetic cause or figure out if their other kids are at risk or other things like that. And that face-to-face interaction requires humanities, you know, of any kind, philosophy, anthropology, theology, you know, what, what is their belief structure? Where do they see this horrible situation? That's what I think that background brings to the table. And I, I had, I was fortunate to have really, really good professors in undergraduate. And in fact, uh, one of whom Dr. Jim Langford just died March 3rd, he was in his eighties, but he taught my, what they they have a class called core where it's just basically intro to all liberal arts. You take sociology, you take philosophy, but you combine it in this one class. And he really taught us to think, not what to think, (laughs) you know, think about everything, bring all these experiences in and um, people in that course You know, some of us went into medicine, some of us went into law, some people continued on as academics in whatever field, but it was a very diverse thing. But that common core of making people learn about things they're uncomfortable with and then bringing that all together was a really good background. Sounds like I could have used that. I I don't like things that I'm uncomfortable with. And I was very uncomfortable with the pre-podcast discussion you two are having, but that's a whole other, let's not even talk about that. We don't. Make it for the Patreon. Yeah, yeah, No, 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 we're not going to keep it. Please do. I have, okay, so this is really interesting to me that you're saying that humanity, because 
this is something that I've noticed over the years, but this is just completely my own personal experience is that there seems to be more distance between myself and the physician. There's more, I put on, you know, I put on the robe, so I'm completely withdrawn from my individuality. I'm just a specimen at that point. That's how it feels. And then the physician sits down at a laptop and starts inputting information before we even have a dialogue. Yeah. And I can understand that there, I guess, in the face of lawsuits or miscommunication or everything being, I don't know, solid and true, that it's almost as though the personal interaction has been taken away for the sake of science, but it doesn't feel like it's working. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about that? I think two aspects to it. The first is that the physician's job has changed quite a bit and physicians have had to basically become their own documenter, their own medical legal person, everything like that. That's taken away from the face-to-face interaction. I have scribes. I actually have a person who comes in with me and writes everything down. And I- just showing up. Rudy's Rudy's looking excited about that. I'm waiting for the lawyer joke. No, no, no. Where's it going to end? No, because of the the, the damn lawyers, right? Come on. That's it's that that's not a joke. That's not a joke. You know, but part of it is, is, you know, they've changed. They've taken away. For instance, old doctors used to come in, talk to you, and then they would just go dictate something. And then some other person would go transcribe it. And then two days later, the note would come out. Now they want, you know, they want up-to-date documentation right away. It's a billing document. It's a legal document. So anyway, having to do that for most doctors has taken away from that interaction. So I have a scribe, I come in and sit down and I basically can look somebody in the eye and not have to write the entire time, um, which is, which is nice. And anyway, I, I wish that more doctors could be like that, or that maybe the financial, you know, whatever you have to do to document wasn't so severe, but it's just gone down that route that you have this pressure to get this note in right away and all this stuff. The customer experience, if you will, mm-hmm. in the medical field is, is sterile for a lot of reasons. I mean, you guys are the subject of a lot of lawsuits mm-hmm. as opposed to other industries, right? Mm-hmm. Would you prefer that we got rid of all of that? Um, you, what I'm trying to ask is, don't you get any comfort from those legal protect the separation? Or do you think that that kind of takes away from the, the joy of, of practicing medicine? Oh, it definitely takes away from the joy. You know, the interesting thing about medical lawsuits is that it's not always the worst doctors that get sued. It's the doctors that are assholes. <laughs> I mean, you don't sue somebody that you like. Uh, is kind of a general rule. But um, if you look at the numbers, there's people who have somewhat poor outcomes, but if they treat patients right, they won't get sued. And the flip side is also true. People with great outcomes often get sued because the consumer patient or doesn't like them or feels like they've been wronged by them. And a lot of times it's situations where the same outcome could happen. You could have you know, some bad outcome and get sued or not get sued based on how you've treated the person. Do they teach that point in medical school? I mean, I should, I mean, Kate's obviously a doctor and we talk a little mm-hmm. bit about this. I should know the answer to that, but, but really do they teach that point? Not specifically in all schools. I mean, certain, most med schools now have classes in like they call clinical aspects of medicine or different ways of teaching people how to interact you know, and that's when, where I first heard that in med school, but I don't know if every med school has that. Do you think they should? I think they should. Yeah. Yeah. You know, actually another undergraduate great experience I had was we, I took a medical anthropology class by a, a professor named Erwin Press. And I don't know if you've heard of like press Ganey scores or anything like that. Whenever you go see a doctor, there's a, a patient satisfaction score and it's, it's actually big money, like uh, drives hospitals. Is, if your patient satisfaction scores better. Isn't that required as a, as a, as a result of Obamacare? Is, aren't those surveys like a required thing these days? I don't know if they're legally required, but hospitals have been using them now for 15 okay. to 20 years. Got it. Okay. But anyway, Irwin Press created the press Ganey score. And so this course had a lot to do with that. He had done research at Jackson Memorial Hospital in Miami on just the doctor-patient interaction down in like the ER, for instance, looking at things like language barriers, which are still a big issue and, and looking at what you say and what the patient hears, two big different things. So I, I was fortunate to have that. I think that that has sort of pervades into medicine and you do learn about it in medical school, but then it probably has actually gone an extreme other direction where now there's financial incentives for high patient satisfaction. Okay. So you think that's great, but 
indirectly, that's partially led to the opioid crisis. That if you go into an ER and someone says they're in pain and it's easy to give them narcotics, it's hard to not give them narcotics. And then your patient satisfaction score goes down and then you get paid less than the guy who just gave him narcotics. <laughs> and oh, and wow. so that's the extreme end of the patient satisfaction thing. That yeah. I think that I don't know if every patient can be satisfied. I mean, you have a, you can have something that is just bad that has happened to you and the doctor can't satisfy that. I mean, if let's say, you know, you have cancer, whoever the first doctor who tells you that is you're, it's just going to suck. You're not going to be happy hearing that news. That interaction is going to be one of the worst days of your life, no matter how well the doctor does it. And so there's, you know, anyway, there's situations where patients can't be satisfied or it's just difficult to satisfy them. You know, I'm, I'm curious about this, what the doctor says and what the patient hears. Do you have an example of that? Well, one of the things is almost the first word or the first statement you say is the most important. Okay. Like a single word. Again, cancer is an example. The C word, after you say the C word, and fortunately I don't have to say it very much, but it's no one listens to anything. And there's, mm-hmm. there's actually like data that supports that too, that you can talk about all the percentages and stuff. But once someone has heard the C word, it, it, it's downhill from there. I can see that. What I've learned from that is to also cut to the chase as early as, as I can. And oftentimes, you know, again, I'm in pediatrics. I see scared parents who think their kid's going to die. If I can, the first thing say, your kid is okay, he or she's not going to die, then they don't listen to anything else after that either, but at least they've heard that. Or for a certain condition, I'll tell them this is a non-life-threatening condition, and I, I have them repeat that non-life threatening. And then once they're there, then, then they don't listen to anything else, but it's okay. They know that. Okay. I'm thinking about this idea of informed consent or how much information you give the patient. Every interaction, you're trying to read how to best communicate what you need to communicate. I Again, I found the word non-life threatening versus mm-hmm. life threatening is just a big dichotomy. I think dangerous is something that if I really, if someone really should do something, I do use that word uh-huh. because, you know, it's, it's pretty clear. I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's others too, but well, you know, the, the interesting thing with that is, so then it, when it comes to consent, what are your choices? You know, that I always think about that. Like, do you have a legitimate choice at that time? And even probably for your C-section, I imagine you had to sign your own consent for this surgery, right? But yeah. you you don't really have a choice not to do that. I mean, you do, but uh, I mean, we can talk about yeah. <laughs> all, you know, true choice, but I always think about that when I, when people are coming in for a procedure is okay. It's eight minutes before the procedure. What choice do they have besides signing this, this little document and everything? Yeah. I remember, so 30 minutes before my C-section, the doctor did another ultrasound. They had to have a specialist come in for the surgery. And he was like, this is going to leave a big scar. And I'm like, well, what am I going to do? <laughs> like, what am yeah, I, what am I like, supposed to say to that? Never yeah. mind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. Look at Rudy's face. But then also they, you know, they told me you might need an emergency hysterectomy. And so they're telling me all of these things just before I go in for surgery. And I realized legally they need to do that. It didn't have to happen, fortunately, but well, okay, wait, there was one other thing. Maybe we can get back to informed consent, but I am also interested in this idea of data interpretation. Mm -hmm. I think it's fascinating how two people can look at the same thing and then come up with completely different explanations. In theology, this is an issue. Like you have Aquinas looking at the governance of the world that suggests that there has to be a head honcho, somebody's in charge. And then you have David Hume come along, looks at the world and says, it is obvious that nobody is in charge. The same evidence. So this is just, yeah, David Hume is a, Rudy lifts eyebrows. There's such a thing as an atheist, Rudy and I like. I do. I'm, I'm not, I am not passing, I'm not passing judgment yeah, yeah. on your religious beliefs yeah. either. Well, no, this is David See, Hume. She's, she's provoking me today. <laughs> <laughs> she's, she's not going to, she's not going to win. She's not going to win. This is, this is calm, Hume. collective Rudy. Oh, it's, we got to get Rudy of, going then. I actually saw this play out in real life where uh, in Belgium, my landlord had a background in genetics. He was an older gentleman and he had yeah a background in biology. And then he was having a conversation with a younger grad student in biology and they sat down and they essentially looked at the same thing to make the case 
my older landlord said that God obviously exists. The other said that God obviously does not exist. It was kind of crazy to watch this play out. Now, I know that we're not going to talk about this in a theological way, but what would be an example of data and then two people looking at the exact same thing and having wildly different interpretations? Or is it wildly different? Yes. I mean, this happened to me on Wednesday, uh, two days ago for the podcast listeners. One of the things that I do is I map the inside of the heart for electrical signals. And the signals are really just like squiggles. And but your t- the timing of them and where they are in relation to each other tells you where you are in the heart. And ultimately, we're trying to get to a point where the two different signals merge together and become fused. And then you you actually have one signal, one electrical signal, and that's where the electricity is crossing. And so it's really hard to know when that fusion happens, if you just have the one signal from the one side or the one signal from the other side, or if you're at this fusion point. My colleague and I, and and there was an engineer in there with us, we're debating during the case with what these signals actually represent. You know, and, and the interesting thing, maybe this is a go down a theological route, is only one answer is ultimately right mm-hmm. in that case. I'm, I'm not sure about the rest of philosophy, but and if you get it wrong, you can cause harm. So we ultimately, we all misinterpreted some initial set of signals. And it wasn't until we kind of went, took a step back, went back around that we could figure out which signals were the true fuse signals. Um, but that, but that's, and that's a very technical example, but even, oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say that is very technical. There is a right or wrong answer there, right? Yes. Right. I mean, there, I mean, I mean, I'm actually asking the question, is there a right or right, right or wrong answer in that scenario? Because either yes. there's a signal or there isn't. Yeah. And so there's other ways of knowing. And in that scenario, we had to go down and look at other ways of knowing. One of the ways was to actually physically look with ultrasound at where the signals were coming from. But anyway, opening the door to the, there are many ways of knowing. And sometimes you have to come at it from a different perspective. But when you're looking at data, I mean, is there a right answer or a wrong answer? That's what I'm trying. I I don't know if if I'm asking the question, is what you were looking at like apples to apples to data? Right. Probably not. And and I think that different examples are in studies. I see this all the time in research where literally they'll have the table of the data Mm -hmm. and then you can interpret it three different ways. People say, this is a good result. And like, no, that's not a good result because one third of these people had this happen. And so the same exact data and true data, like data that's good and valid can be interpreted completely different ways. So So that's where we're getting going. Where is, yeah. So we actually, when we talked with Tracy Drain, so we talked with the NASA engineer and she, we think about engineering is so objective. And she Mm -hmm. even mentioned how there can be different ways for a solution for a problem. So it's, sounds like a very healthy debate actually and i would imagine in medicine that's where you want to have some debates otherwise we don't grow and learn but my question for you is when there are different interpretations what plays into that interpretation does it have to do with the person's background what they had for breakfast (laughs) what countries they've studied in how experienced they are what goes into that interpretation I think everything. I mean, I think that how you were trained is very important in a basically apprenticeship like job, like uh, being a physician is. And so who trained you, how they trained you, what they told you those signals or that those things should be. I think also just people have intrinsic biases, obviously. Some of the biases, when I look at, for instance, papers, medical papers, different programs, different centers want to be doing different things. And so, you know, they want to interpret the data the way that works for them as well. And especially if it's ambiguous, you can take it to mean a lot of different things and say, well, our approach is clearly the best. One, you know, an interesting um, kind of medical thing is there are certain conditions. There's a condition called hypoplastic left heart syndrome, which is a very severe pediatric heart disease. It's very rare, but every hospital wants to be good at it. Every hospital, every pediatric hospital, if if you're good at that, you're good at, you're, you're like the best, you know? So people are are just constantly putting out papers about this hypoplastic left heart. There's clearly good places and bad places for it, but then everyone has their kind of slant that they want to put in like, oh, well, we do it this way. And that's why we're the best. And then they'll put out eight papers on that. And, it, oh. you know, and, and so there's, there's also, anyway, there's also secondary gain, obviously from, that's from interpretation of data. That's what I'm thinking about. What is the aim? You know, we talk about 
I also do an engineering ethics class and we talk about the challenger disaster. It was an example of where the engineers had the data to say, this will not work. This is not going to work. The engineers who were part of that, they went to their deathbed. But like one of them who died not too long ago had said, God, you put the wrong person in charge. It gives me chills to even think about it because they knew it wasn't going to work, but it was a business decision to launch. The business people said, we got to go. We got to go up. We put, we can't not do it. But one of the issues. Was that, was that the, the challenger? Was mm-hmm. that, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. We talked about it. Yeah, yeah, no, I've right. tried to tell my students. I'm like, I remember one time showing them a, a, one of my classes, a video um, about it. And I can't watch it more. I was surprised at how emotional I got watching all the astronauts wave and thinking they have no idea that the engineers are having a debate. Anyway, back to this idea of interpretation, Richard Clark had written this book called Warnings and Cassandra Complex. And he said, one of the reasons why issues like the Challenger or other things come up is because when somebody has the numbers, which seems to be objective, if the person that they're telling has never experienced it before, they're less likely to believe the numbers. Mm -hmm. So even with, if you remember the tsunami in Japan, a few years ago where their nuclear power plant was vulnerable, there was an engineer who told them, do not build here. Mm -hmm. And they were asked uh, when he was asked why, and he said, because there was a tsunami here. And they said, well, when was that? It's 500 years ago, but it wiped out everything. You cannot build a nuclear power plant. They just didn't but because it just seemed to be too extreme. And even Richard Clark, who's the author of this, he's credited with knowing that there was going to be September 11th. He told the Bush administration there's going to be attack on American soil. He was shuttled off to a small corner office as a result of that because it had never been experienced before. So even though the numbers are coming through, if people have never seen it and it seems too incredible, they're not likely to believe it. What are your thoughts when I'm saying all this? Is anything coming to your mind or can you think of an example in medicine? I think of all the things that the world takes for granted in terms of medicine, okay, or in terms of health. I think it, you know, these days, not only related to COVID, and, but related to vaccination in general, there's this deep hesitancy. And a lot of it is that people haven't seen the diseases and you, you, people take health for granted. I think that, you know, the, the numbers, you can try and convince anybody of certain numbers of how great a certain public health intervention is. But if you haven't seen the disease, or even that you avoid the disease, then you don't really have a full sense of what it could have been. You know, I would say I'm not a public health officer or anything like that, but public health is the least sexy thing in medicine. It's like the least cool thing. Um, it's like the infrastructure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the infrastructure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now Rudy's going to like, no, but all the stuff that you avoid, you never even knew you avoided it. Think about that, you know, that that things that you never, you don't even have to think about, they came at a cost. And two examples that I can think of in my own experience are rheumatic fever, rheumatic heart disease. Okay. None, none of us have experienced anyone who's had rheumatic fever, right. In growing up, it's a immune reaction to your heart from strep throat. And the only reason that you treat strep throat, it doesn't make your strep throat get better faster. If you give them penicillin or moxicillin, it prevents rheumatic fever. Well, 80 years ago in the U.S., 70 years ago in the U.S., they kind of figured that out. and They basically eradicated it from the U.S. I go to uh, Micronesia, to these small islands in the Pacific and other places in the world where rheumatic fever is still basically their number one cause of pediatric heart disease and of death for young, you know, young people and everything. And, you know, we... I took for granted that rheumatic fever can even happen, where in other places, it's one of their biggest public health issues. It costs them money and kids die from it. I think you're right. I mean, I'm thinking if everybody did see something, some kind of a disease like this, they would do whatever they could to not have that. But since it's been... Well, and the things you take for granted... so. You know, we go to Micronesia. I have a group called Pacific Hearts Incorporated, which we kind of did a, a non-for-profit for that. So I met with another non-for-profit that goes to tropical islands, and, and that one's called Surf Aid International. We were kind of trying to do some synergy on, on you know, I was saying, well, we could go with you guys to, on your trips and stuff. Their thing is even more taken for granted. Their thing is literally clean water and maternal health. And those are the things that even Micronesia takes for granted. And Micronesia, where I go, has clean water and they have really pretty good maternal health. Where these guys go, one in six or seven women die. They have the highest, I don't quote those numbers, but they have the highest maternal health deaths in the world. They have most of their disease is just water. 
So even I'm trying to kind of bring a primitive thing to them about looking for rheumatic fever and they're going, you know what, we can make a bigger difference just by giving these people clean water and preventing women from dying in childbirth. So all those things in, in our world, I don't think many of us know people who've died in childbirth. I mean, it does happen, but it's it's exceedingly rare. We don't know people who've had rheumatic fever, all the vaccine preventable diseases, even in pediatrics. Most general pediatricians, including when I was there, I haven't seen most of the diseases that we vaccinate for. You know, that's that's awesome. It's big success, but it's it's hard. Things that are taken for granted, it's hard to quantify those in people's minds. And now a quick break to hear from our friends at Almost Plausible Podcast. Hi, I'm Thomas. I'm Emily. I'm F. Paul Shepard. And together, we host a podcast called Almost Plausible. Each week on Almost Plausible, we pick a different everyday object and then make up a story centered around that object. Usually, this is in the form of a movie plot, and we try not to take ourselves too seriously. So what I'm hearing is none of these ideas are original so far. I mean, we thought of them ourselves. <laughs> it's just other people thought of them first. Hey, it's called Almost Plausible, not Almost Original. <laughs> <laughs> but it is Almost Original. It is Almost Original. Okay, it's called Almost Plausible, not Definitely Original. There yeah, there you go. So whether you like writing, movies, or just stories in general... Almost Plausible will make a great addition to your podcast lineup. Subscribe to Almost Plausible for free wherever you listen to podcasts or visit us at our website, almostplausible.com. And now back to the show. What got you into this branch of medicine? Was there a moment when you were studying and you're like, okay, this is what I want to continue with? Um, I joke around that I always, I, I, I wanted to be an NFL football player and that didn't work out, but um, <laughs> you were quite, uh, clearly, to, to be fair, you were quite the football player though. He was, do, 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 did you ever go to any of the high school football Are you games? Are talking about my junior prom date? I am talking about your junior prom date was a badass <laughs> in football. I'm just, just, just so the audience knows that. Okay. Yeah. So I, but I, I, I always wanted to work with children. I always wanted to do pediatrics and, or, or work with children in some way. And then I just felt like doing pediatrics was the way to do it. But then I got into pediatrics and I didn't like day-to-day pediatrics. So then I, I got into cardiology and then my subfield of electrophysiology is known as the nerd herd amongst the cardiologists even. I mean, there's only about 200 of us in the US, maybe a little bit more, but we all, you know, I got into this weird niche because it just, something made sense to me. And, uh, when I was doing it, I enjoyed it and it was a good way to help people. Sounds like a story of becoming a bond lawyer. And I don't mean a okay. James, like a James Bond <laughs> oh, lawyer, oh, like geez. in the infrastructure field, we are called bond lawyers mm-hmm. and we're, there's, you know, a couple hundred of us and, and we're the super nerdy, super niche people. There's you know, a it is here. rare that I am ever the coolest one in the room, but I appreciate you guys giving me this opportunity. Wow. Yeah. The philosophy <laughs> professor is the, I mean, there. Is, she's I got right, it. She's I, I got it. I actually couldn't come at back at her. No, there's, no. It's, 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 that's black or white. There's an answer to that one. You're the coolest you know person in this room. Congratulations. <laughs> well, she's, she's young. See, I'm, I'm old. And so <laughs> I've embraced myself at this point. Yeah. yeah she's, she's younger than us. True. So it's true. Okay. I still need to back up and I want to understand exactly what you do. Okay. <laughs> I want to, understand exactly what you do why are there only 200 of you is it would this be in the u.s or worldwide i mean how rare are you that's a great question thank you <laughs> he's one of a kind but in it for his day job how rare is it are there really only 200 i mean seriously is that a correct number it's around 300 in the world there's wow. about 300 in our international pcp society my wife would say especially when i was looking for a job it's low supply but low demand you need about one of me for every million people is basically the numbers. Ah, so it's it, so it's a, it's a numbers game. It's a statistics. It's data, isn't it? That's what it determines is. your oh, somewhat, cool. somewhat. Okay. It's just that you know, yeah, in not in, cool. a, in a certain region. I wish you were not. There's needed. not as many kids who have this have these kind of problems. Okay, and you have to be practicing though out of a big tertiary center too, so you can't just like set up shop anywhere. Um, people have to kind of come in. But yeah, it's a small world. We all know each other. I was on a call this morning from seven to eight and there were people from India and the Far East and Europe. And it was actually just an educational thing that we do once a month together. And so it is a small world of people that kind of know each other pretty well. 
I like that you say that it was an educational thing. So if it's so clarify what it is that you do and then what is sure. there, where's the room for the growth? Like, what don't you know? I don't know a lot. Um, <laughs> but that's interesting as well. Mm-hmm. That's what I think yeah. is interesting about medicine is finding out what we don't know that we don't know. So what I do is treat pediatric and adult congenital, which I can explain in a second, patients who have heart rhythm problems. Okay. Simply it's if their heart goes too slow, we make it go faster. And if their heart goes too fast, we make it go slower. Uh-huh. Um, Rudy just has to run his hands through his heart. I think that, yeah, <laughs> sorry. It's just ridiculous. His hair is amazing. We got to get that. I'll spend the next half an hour talking about my hair. I'll I'll do it. Don't don't tempt me. So not tempt me. We don't need. We don't need drugs. My hair. My hair is a superpower. But really fast enough. We you, bring you're, you're talking to a superhero. That's who so you're talking. For, Forget about my hair. For a second. I know. Please. For the listeners, we're all in the same room together for the first time since COVID hit. Right, guys? And there's some slight nervousness because I'm looking at you two and I'm like, do either of these two people have COVID? Am I going to die? Because that's my OCD crazy oh, brain. For the love of God. I and I are just looking at his hair, right? We're, <laughs> we're just looking at Rudy's hair. Okay. So okay. if somebody's heart is going too slow or or if it's going too fast. Uh, yeah, then we, we treat with a variety of things. Um, Give them a book by Aristotle and that'll slow. <laughs> that'll slow or, them or, way or, down. Oh, oh, just or slow Bond down. Law. You ever read an adventure? I no. n- Nothing will slow you down like an adventure. I'm telling you. <laughs> I don't even know what that is, but I'll, bonds I'll maybe are issued, a, maybe bonds are issued to the documents. Yeah. Call, it's actually not Standard a of idea. care versus reading bond law. <laughs> bond, bond law. And yeah. Uh, yeah. we'll see. So, yeah, so we, we use medications, but we do interventional procedures where we put catheters through the groin and they go up into the heart and we can map the inside of the wait, heart. Wait, 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 wait. So you know those words that make you where you say oh. you don't hear anything else? So you just said a catheter. Groin? How, why? Why? Why is it going through the groin to the heart? Okay, aren't there there are other avenues? You go through there the neck. Other selections. <laughs> How many holes are like? No, 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 no. Yeah. no, no it's not the gross. genitals. It's it's the it's the femoral vessels. It's You're gonna have to put a PG thirteen uh, thing on on the beginning of this episode for now. We just made. It. I think Gwen just flushed. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, um, okay, go, go ahead. So I just, I, we put catheters into the heart, the best option. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Catheter. So a catheter is just a cord. It's not a urine catheter. It's not anything like that. It okay. goes through the veins into the heart and we, we map the inside of the heart and find where the rhythm problem is coming from and then burn or freeze that area. Okay. Um, so fix it pretty much instantaneously. Um, other things that we do for fast rhythms, if people have life-threatening fast rhythms, we can implant a device in their heart that will defibrillate them if they go into a dangerous fast rhythm. Are there environmental factors to explain if there's more patients with this in one country versus another? Well, for the life-threatening arrhythmias, there are clear genetic links. And we I do research in that, and many of my colleagues do too. So we've we've isolated different genes that predispose people to these these arrhythmias certainly has genetic movement and certain, you know, certain demographics are highly more likely to have certain genes, but ultimately they're still exceedingly rare. They're like one in, you know, 10,000, one in a hundred thousand even. But if one, if a proband has it, if a parent has it, then their child has basically a 50% chance of getting the gene. So that's, that's one way. Some, some of the other arrhythmias though, have to do more with the embryology of the heart, that the heart itself starts as a tube, basically like a sausage of muscle that lets that electricity can flow directly across in one direction. And then it sort of flips around on itself and forms valves and other things or fairly early in development. Some of those that the electrical flow gets cut off by those different valve formation. And sometimes just a tiny strand of muscle still exists and lets electricity cross an area where it shouldn't. Okay. So it's not genetic. It's just, it's embryology. It's how the heart sort of forms itself. I mean, I actually treat fetuses even. We have, there's fetuses who go into fast rhythms and we will treat the fetus through the mother, give the mother medicines that get into the fetus. So a totally healthy mother that needs to take a cardiac medicine to treat 
the fetus. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Try to wrap your head around that. I mean, that's that's the type of amazing stuff that your junior prom date did. <laughs> I'll tell you right now, there's not a lot of junior well, prom dates in the world. Rudy, I, I will say I was a little jealous once on the podcast because you were talking about conniption and you didn't mention who your guitarist was for conniption. Did, did I talk about conniption? You did when, when Mark Farley was <laughs> oh, on there. that's here, right. Our drummer. Yeah. Oh, and my. you talked about Joey, our lead singer, oh, but you didn't God. talk about your great guitarist. I, your, you know, you, you're, you're absolutely right. I should have, you know, it's very, very true. The very first band I was in, in my life was with this guy. And yeah. still the best band. It's st- <laughs> still the, the best band. And I should have mentioned you. And I'm so, so sorry. He's a terrific guitar player. Terrific. Do you still play? Uh, I, I play piano. I play a little bit of guitar. Okay. So I wish I had more time. Do your kids play? My kids do. Yeah. My oh, They play piano. And then my middle son, my eight-year-old, is a fabulous singer. And I'll have you guys, uh, I'll show you guys. He, he just sung a national anthem recently at a Little Aww. League event. He he sings all sorts of stuff. So Tony, how I, about this? I'll, let me stop you right there. What's What have been some of your favorite episodes that have triggered in your mind, like, oh man, if I was on there, I would have talked about X. I, I think that the philosophy of science was, uh, I think had two episodes of that, right? That were, but at least one of them was really got me into this podcast. I think thinking about how people think is really, really interesting to me. Uh-huh. And so that was one, I, I mean, I just listened to the haunted, haunted home one. I think it's very interesting that some people get it. Watching a scary movie calms them down, like calms Rudy down. You're crazy people. And, it calms down crazy um, people. And then for yes. me, uh, I don't watch those movies. It it really stresses me out and I don't enjoy them. You know, that's interesting. I think that the election stuff, the January 6th. Oh, with episode, Elizabeth Weidrush. Yeah. Rosary. Yeah. I think that was really interesting. Um, I also even, I think that the election fraud with Jeff Cortese was really interesting too. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a super fan of this podcast and I'm really happy to be here. Well, we're, we're happy to have you here, but I, I'm, and that's great. I love that you've listened to all those, but has there been one in particular that what stuck with you and made you think a little differently and to the point where, hey, I'd love to talk to Rudy and Gwen about that. I would say no is the short answer, but the long answer is that some I get sometimes when I'm not trying to get something out of it, I actually get more out of it. Like the haunted house or haunted home one. I was like, well, I, I'm not really into this topic, but I just listened to it and it brought up a lot of good questions and everything. So nice. Yeah. One of the things that, you know, in preparation for this, you sent me um, an article and it was about... Mm, was it deciding without data or was it the i sent one serious article somewhat serious article about evaluating doctors decisions yes and then i sent the other two were sort of were joke ones but they were they were about that no one's ever proven that a parachute saves lives (laughs) and and no one's ever done a study and and so part of it is the limitations of scientific research, right? You're not going to study if a parachute works or not. And that was the whole joke of that. And then at the end of that, they even said, I would like the people who the evidence-based medicine people to be the first volunteers to do the study of if a parachute works. (laughs) Um, So there's certain things that are intuitive. And I guess one thing that I wanted to talk to Gwen about was, you know, different ways of knowing within medicine. And I would say within human thought in the last maybe 200 years, and certainly in the last 100 years, there's been a emphasis on the primacy of the scientific method. I think that people think that that's the only way to know something. I think that some of the things I sent you guys are, are evidence that there that isn't the only way to know things. Well, that's what I thought was so interesting. I'm wondering if it surprised you at all, the first article that had to do with decision-making, and it was, wasn't it that actually the majority of cardiologists did not base on a peer-reviewed paper that they had read in order to make their decision. Right, exactly. Yeah, I think it was less than, it was definitely less than 20%. It may have been even closer to 10% were truly evidence-based decisions. Did that surprise you? No, not at all, actually. Why? Yeah. Why did that not surprise you? Uh, because you know, the majority of things that anybody does, you don't really have scientific evidence for, okay. I would say. And, and then that coupled with what we had talked about, the kind of rarity of some of the diseases that we look at, mm-hmm. it makes it really hard to study things. And I mean, part of this, the, the group that I met with this morning, we try and put together these international studies of certain diseases, and we'll get literally 
40 or 50 people or patients are from around the world, right? So how can you mathematically make any real conclusion based on a study of 50 people? It's the only study. It's the only way to study these kind of things. So a lot of the things that we do in my field, there's just not enough disease, but we still have to make conclusions and have to decide and have to do something. I mean, if you think about your your day-to-day life, how many decisions you make, and I I think that article looked at, I mean, most physicians are making something like 200 to 400 decisions a day, but any of us are doing that. You're making little decisions, some of which are arbitrary, some of which are based on prior experiences, some of which are just sort of based on how you're feeling that day. And, you know, not all of them are important decisions, but every single decision, you, you do have to make a decision. What's the difference between a good doctor and a bad doctor? That's a good, that's a loaded question. Do do you feel comfortable answering that? Well, because I- (laughs) Yeah, let me confer with my attorney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 I understand what you're, I think I understand what you're asking. So this is a philosophical, so for good and bad. So for instance, like, let's say, well, like when I ask my engineering students, the distinction between a good and a bad engineer, and we have to look at, well, what is the function of engineering? And if it's just to make sure that stuff doesn't fall apart mm-hmm. or problem solve, well, we have to analyze what constitutes a problem. Or if they say to make life better, well, we have to know what life is. Otherwise, how can you make it better? So there's all mm-hmm. sorts of assumptions. Jesus Christ, you guys just muddle everything up, you philosophers. We do I mean, not. It's it's unbelievable. Not, you can't yeah. get a straight answer out of these friggin' people. Yeah, but then <laughs> when, when I first, um, you know, emailed Tony, and I was asking about Aristotle because Aristotle says the aim of medicine is health. And I'm wondering if that is entirely true. If he's right, then that gets rid of probably a lot of practices, cosmetic surgery, plastic surgery, right? There's, or we have to reevaluate. Uh, mental health. Uh, yeah, we have to reevaluate what constitutes health or in situations of if somebody is terminally ill and they're in a lot of pain and let's say they want to do physician assisted suicide, what is the physician's position then? Because they're not going to improve somebody's health, but maybe to minimize suffering. So anyways, that's what I'm thinking of when I'm saying good or bad doctor, what constitutes a good or a bad doctor? That's up to the patient. Really? I think. But what if a patient's wrong? Like, let's say they get the C word, cancer, and then they want to go somewhere else where they're not going to get that. And then they don't get that. Then what do they do? Do they say, well, I'm going to go with the doctor who says that that's not what it is? I think that to that person that isn't a good doctor um, and whoever they find the answer from is, I mean, we see this a lot with, there's a, a lot of people who go to non-medical practitioners. And there's certain conditions where I think that's great. I think that, you know, non-medical practitioners, but if you have a, like in, in my field, if you have a sudden death causing disease that's genetic, I don't know that a non-medical practitioner would be the best to prevent your death. Okay. So part of it is what, what are you expecting out of the experience? I think that, I mean, the definition of health, I I was thinking about this a lot when we've been, when we were emailing, I think it changes and it even changes amongst different cultures, right? That around here, it's mainly to prevent death, honestly, but other places, health is being a vibrant part of the community. They don't necessarily want to live the rest of their life or, you know, in a computer, like billions of years, I would like to live. They, they, you know, they want to, to them be not being a part of their cultural group is worse than dying or, you know, and so health is being included into that group. I think where medicine has traditionally gotten involved is when through crises and pandemics, you know, this is a good time to talk about that pandemics and wars have actually made medicine advance probably faster than, than a lot of other things. So because, because they had to, right, Tony, they had to, because then you're, you're trying, you're seeing death and you're trying to acutely prevent death. You're not necessarily going, okay, what, how are you feeling about this or, or things like that? It's like, okay, you're going to die. You're not going to die. So I'm going to take care, you know, we're, we're got to fix the guy who's going to die first kind of thing. And, and that this is clearly in surgery. I mean, a lot of great surgical advances, cardiovascular surgery, most, a lot of orthopedic surgery, they've all had to do with people getting their legs blown off or people getting shot places. I mean, the first cardiac surgery 
well, the first cardiac surgery, at least in the United States and probably in the world, was done in Chicago on a man who was stabbed. And there was this sort of belief in medicine that you don't touch the heart. You don't do surgery on the heart. It's and, the soul. This was only, this is not that long This ago, was in right? there. Yeah, it was like in the early, I, I forget which year, because I just read this, but it was in 1900, certainly. Um, it was also done by an African-American physician. I remember that. I remember that. Um, that was an amazing and, thing. Yes. Uh, but anyway, just, it's like, okay, you got to do something. And so that took away the taboo from operating on the heart. And that was really on pericardium on the outside of the heart. It wasn't truly on the heart, but then other surgeons then had, it gave them sort of the courage. And I guess the moral, you know, that you weren't breaking a moral taboo to touch the heart if you're fixing somebody. And then World War II actually led to some great surgical advances, including really cardiac surgery on babies. And there's, um, uh, I don't know if you've heard of Helen Tausig and Alfred Blaylock or Vivian Thomas. Were they um, Bond lawyers? <laughs> no, <laughs> I've never heard so of them. There's a great movie called, um, I think it's called Something the Lord Made, but it, oh, it's that, the that story. Movie. I've it's, seen that. it's the story of really the first cardiac surgeries on blue babies. Helen Tausig was a great cardiologist at Johns Hopkins. Alfred Blaylock was this kind of war surgeon guy. She sort of convinced him to do these, she devised this idea. And then his, actually, his lab assistant, Vivian Thomas, who's since gotten a doctorate and, and gotten the fame that he deserves. He was, he was also African-American. He was African-American. Right? Yeah, I remember that story, yes. Um, devised this cardiac surgery to help palliate blue kids. But anyway, he was a he was a war surgeon. He was, and a lot of his vascular surgery skills really came from that. I'm wondering, since you said African-American surgeons, if when there have been advances in medicine, if it also hasn't been that somebody is on the outside because they have a clearer view of something that could be problematic. Is that, does that, I don't know. Is that I true? think so. I mean, I, I, de- so I, <laughs> I, I definitely that think that groups have been excluded from medicine and African-Americans and women, I think have, and even other cultures too. But I certainly think that having an outside perspective gives you something that the people inside don't have. Can I ask a question? Can I ask a personal question? If you weren't a doctor, what would you, what, what would you do with your life? Man, I don't, I don't, I don't know. It's a hard, I, it's a hard question. I, I I'm, I'm trying to answer it honestly, too. I could make any number of jokes or whatnot. I'm still, you know, I still have four years of football eligibility, so I could go back to <laughs> NFL. But um, I, I, I realistically, I think I would have, I may have been a teacher, like a, a junior high or high school level teacher. I probably would be doing something working with, with children because that's really what drew me into this. That's great. That's great. I have a friend from med school who uh, was an ER doc and he actually has gone back and he's a high school teacher now. He also does a lot of cool stuff about mental health for high schoolers, but he kind of went the opposite direction where he just being an ER doctor was was not his. I mean, it, he's great at it, but he just it it was bad for his family life. It was bad for his personal health, and he um, I think found this calling of of teaching these kids in high school. I'm going to ask the obvious question. He's genuinely happier. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, great. That's awesome. Absolutely. That's awesome. It's great. Yeah. So what would be something that we've learned about the heart? Can you think of a marker other than like, you know, these other advancements, but I'm just kind of curious, do we know everything about the heart? Is it as opposed to, let's say the brain or another organ or how much do we still need to know or what's unexplained? Oh man. Yeah. We, there's still a lot to know. That was a great question. (laughs) Jesus. I mean, she has to hear that once. I, I on said it every... early. I said it early on. Rudy's busy. He only, he's only yeah. heard this. Yeah. Okay. Uh, there's and many things about the heart. I mean, I mean, just there's really, you know, intricate dorky things, but about how the different fibers go. We're, we're constantly learning like how electromechanically the heart kind of squeezes on itself and, and finding ways to measure that. So all, all of those things are, are really interesting. And then I think the new frontiers are really genetic and um, that we can find markers that lead to certain risks and things like that. I think where it becomes philosophical though, and I, I have to have this discussion a lot with families is if you have a certain gene, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have a disease. And is that knowledge, what does that knowledge do for you? Are you sitting on a ticking time bomb? What does that do for your personal health, your anxiety, all sorts of stuff? Or, you know, some people like to know, and some people don't like to know. Figuring that out, figuring those things out, like what, you know, genetic programming, a lot of it's determinism. Is a gene truly determine what your life's going to be or what your experience is going to be? 
Or if you think that, then what if it then became a causal factor that led your life in a direction that you would not have otherwise done? Yeah. Like maybe limited it or freed it. Like if you knew that yeah. you, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean we've yeah, all had a death sentence. Don't know. You guys accept that. I will never, ever, I just I will never accept losing my hair. I will never accept death. So an interesting phenomenon in this regard is People who have a defibrillator implanted, something that's inside them that prevents them from dying, become depressed at a very high rate. What? Um, they have, it's a well-known phenomenon. It, it, it's been studied by, it doesn't matter. There's, a, there's a, a great guy in North Carolina named Sam Sears. And he looked at depression rates in people who have, whose lives have been saved and who have a defibrillator inside them that's going to save their life in the future. And they don't, totally know, to be honest. I mean, they don't know the reason why you would think that you would be happy about the second chance on life. Type yeah. Of thing. But people, they, it causes them such fear that they could die at any moment that they, I, I'm probably going to really ruin, ruin Rudy's day here that <laughs> at, at any moment, you know, you could die. No, nope, nope. um, bullshit. And, uh, but the, the reality of that is causes crippling fear so much so that people have had life-saving defibrillators removed from themselves. And it was a truly informed decision and that they did not want to live with that burden. Can I ask you a question? Yep. I'm going to put you on the spot here. If somebody came to you with one of these life-saving defibrillators and they said that they were depressed and they couldn't go on with their life, and for some reason you just happened to be the only doctor there that could do it, and you gave them all the informed consents, would you take it out of them? Yes. Okay, wow. So that's yeah. that's and an amazingly difficult question to answer. Yes. Yeah. If someone really you know, has full capacity to make that decision for themselves, then you have to honor their autonomy. I mean, I've met with people that have done that or have talked about that. We had a conference of our professional society. We have a conference every year, but one year we had people with defibrillators of all kinds. We actually even get them together once a year. And certain people have talked about what it's meant for their life. You know, majority of people, it's, hey, it's they're fine with it and it's great. But it, it is weird that you get this deep-seated depression. So much so that when I put one in, I consider part of my protocol to actually connect them with a the mental health professional and tell them that this is normal. You know, you're likely or much more likely to feel depression, anxiety, things like that. Even though you have a life-saving device, even though your life has been saved, we don't totally know the reasons why, but it's, it is true. Did we answer what is the dif- distinction between a good doctor and a bad doctor? No, no, I've been avoiding that. I've, I've been, <laughs> yeah, I've been, you, you know, I've been, you need to pick up, need to pick up on that, did you? Yeah. The lawyer, the lawyer in me was like, that was a great answer. It totally pushed her and, away. And the Catholic schoolboy in me is like, all right, I think I got her off the question. I think, I think, I think the bell's going to ring soon. Totally. That is exactly what was going on. So I, so in my opinion, will you be in trouble? Wait. No, I, I'll answer it. I'll answer it. We're, we're amongst. I them. will answer the question. I he's like, he's like shaking his head. Uh, he's, he's putting his hand Dory, over the mic. Dory, we won't tell anyone. So <laughs> nobody listens to this. Nobody it's only one of the. It's only the top point one point five podcasts in the world. But that's a whole other thing. I think it is technical knowledge and skill combined with unusual humanity, empathy, and sympathy. I think that's a good doctor. What's a bad doctor? Lacking any one of those components. Any one. Any yeah. one. Wow. What are you thinking, Rudy? I'm thinking if I want to be transferred to a computer, oh you God. should stop picking on me. <laughs> that's what I think. That's what I think. Like you should, it should just be that. I should just, you should just accept that. I want to talk about this. When you're alive with your computer and all of us are dead, yes. like how he's probably going to be happy. But realistically, like, like, can, I, can I watch film noir? If I can watch film noir all like, day long, then, then that's, then I'll see, it was nice three, knowing you guys. 300, yeah, 3,000 years and, and people you love are all gone and you're oh, just man, still there's here. so many good I don't want to be, I don't necessarily want to be There's here. so many good movies that I've never read, seen. I mean, there's, there's not enough time. Well, maybe you'll be reincarnated. I mean, there's. there's no, I want to be Rudy. No. <laughs> You'll probably always be Rudy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No from, your mouth to God, from your mouth to no God's ears. You're born into, no I think you're always going to be. Well, okay, are we good? We're good. Okay. All right. Are we happy with everything? I mean, if yeah. I, can, I would love to just keep talking. But, yeah. I would too, but so. let's go do it with some beers. Okay. All right. <laughs> Good is in the Details is produced by Dr. Gwendolyn Dolsky and Rudy Salo. If you're enjoying the show and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please scroll down to the bottom and hit that five-star review. If you would like to support the show and get extra content and join our book club, you can go to patreon.com slash good is in the details. I'll add that in the show notes. 
thank you, Dr. Tony McCanta, for coming on the show, for driving out. It was a great time. We loved having you, and we hope you'll come back on for more pod episodes. All right, we have a lot more coming up for season three. Thank you so much for the support. Thank you for the emails. Good is in the details pod at gmail.com. And until next time, bye.